If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of John. The Gospel of John will be in chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I just want to say thanks again for letting us get away to the ACBC conference. Pastor Steve and I were gone last uh, this past week to Jacksonville, Florida, where they had the ACBC conference, uh, this, the Biblical Counseling Conference about the sufficiency of Scripture. And the theme of the conference this year was on the, uh, the five solas of the Reformation and how that connects with biblical counseling. And so we had a great time hearing good preaching from the Word of God, going to breakout seminars that kind of helped beef up our uh, passion for the glories of Christ and all things counseling. And I think one of my takeaways was one of the speakers got up and said that the Reformation began with a counseling issue. And when he said that, I'm like, yeah, yada, yada, yada. We're at a biblical counseling conference. That's what I expect these guys to do. And he went on to say, if you remember, Martin Luther was troubled in his heart about whether or not he had salvation from God. And he would go for counseling or confession to the priest to try to see whether or not he had done enough things in order to clear his conscience. And basically, he was struggling with knowing whether or not he was saved. And it was only the word of God through Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the just shall live by faith, that ultimately Martin Luther was counseled by God through his word. And I thought about how profound that really is. In many ways, people come into the counseling office disturbed and in despair about some issue. It could be about their salvation. It could be something connected to their sanctification. But the Reformation and the gospel and our biblical counseling ministry really stands on the gospel of Christ. It all starts with knowing Christ and then living for Christ every day as we abide in him and he abides in us. And so it was a glorious conference, very encouraged. And uh, thank you for allowing us to be there. And thanks for praying for what God's doing right here. We did officially become a training center, which means that we now have the capacity and the capability of providing ACBC certification right here at our church. We hope to host conferences here in the future. Uh, Most of you know, Dr. Scott is here with us. He's a fellow. And so it kind of helps enable us to be able to provide more and more things biblical counseling. So even though we're not offering that class this semester, we have a marriage class, not a biblical counseling class. I just want to let you know there's a lot going on. We'd love to have your help. If that's something you're still interested in doing, you could talk to me or Pastor Steve or maybe even Dr. Scott. And we'd love to kind of point you in the right direction about how you could get certified and participate in biblical counseling right here at Placerita. Well, here we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We've been here for some time. This is an important discourse of the bread of life sermon that Jesus really gives to those that are in his audience. I am the bread of life, starting in verse 22 and running down to the end of the chapter. Today, we'll be looking at verses 45 through 51, and have entitled today's sermon is, is this, All Who Come. All who come. Let's listen to the words of Jesus, picking up in verse 45. It is written in the prophets... And they will be taught, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that has come down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Father, we pray that you would open our ears to hear and our minds to understand the reading of the word of God and the application that your spirit would make in our hearts to understand what Christ is saying when he says, all who come to me will by no means be cast out. Be uh, our focus of this sermon, God. Be our, our restorer of our mind to these truths today as we look at this text. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a world that is full of regulations. In order to get the right job or in order to go to the school of your choice or to buy the right house or the right car, there are qualifications that must be met. 
In order to apply for a credit card, for example, or a car loan or a home loan, you must have your credit run or you must sit down with the loan officer who will tell you how much money you can borrow and at what interest rate. And they want to know things like how much money do you make and what other obligations do you have financially and what proof do you have that if we loan you the money, then you'll get it back and you might qualify for the loan or you may not. When it comes to applying for a college or a university, you have to have a high school diploma or a GED, or a certain SAT, your ACT score. For example, to go to one of the Ivy League schools of Harvard, Princeton, or Yale, you have to have an SAT score of 1470 or above. How many of you would get into Harvard? Not me, right? Nobody's going to raise their hand. They're like, I made a 1600 on the SAT, right? But the point is you have to have these high qualifications to get into some of these schools, to get to law school. You have to score well on the LSAT. To get to medical school, you have to score well on the MCAT, right? In order to work almost any job in America, you have to have certain credentials or certificates or a certain license that demonstrate proper training and preparation for the particular job of your choice, For example, when I was a PA, I had to take an exam to be a board-certified physician's assistant in order to work in open-heart surgery, or they wouldn't have let me anywhere near the operating room. And aren't you thankful that those people who are cutting on you back there are certified and are licensed, which shows, again, proper training, that they don't just let anybody do surgery? And the list goes on and on, right? You have to try out in athletics in order to make the team. You have to audition in theatrics in order to get the part. You have to apply if you want to get the scholarship. This is just the way things are done. Well, there is, however, a higher goal in life that is far more important than all of these earthly pursuits, and that is knowing whether or not you qualify for heaven, knowing whether or not when you die, will you get in? The Bible teaches that it's either up or down. It's either heaven or hell. And the question we ought to be asking in life is, how do I know whether or not I'll be saved and spend eternity in heaven? I mean, our life is so short. We're, we're, we're but a vapor. The Bible says we're here today and we're gone tomorrow. And really the pursuit of our life ought to be a heavenly one and not an earthly one. My pastor used to say, Adam, there's only two things that last forever, and that's the word of God and the souls of men. We know that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that the grasses wither and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever, and so does your soul. And you will live for at all eternity, either, either in heaven or in hell. So sometimes that question can be a little bit daunting for us to think about. But I have good news for you this morning, and that is this. All who come to the Father through the Son will be saved. If you come to the Father through the Son, you will be saved. And you don't have to have a good credit history. Thank goodness. You don't have to have a high SAT score. You don't have to be good enough to make the athletic team or to get the part in the drama that you would like to get, right? The, The point is, it's not about how good you are. It's about how good Christ is. You see, coming to Christ is not about your past. It's about your future. It's not about your intellect. It's about your God given repentance. It's not about your ability. It's about the humility that you need to recognize that when it comes to the things of God, it's not about you or your effort. It's about God and his grace. And in John chapter 6, we're seeing that there's a clear calling for you to come. And all who come to Christ will be saved. In fact, pick up at verse 37 of this same chapter, chapter 6 of John, and see where Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Skip down to verse 40 where Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or look at verse 44 where last week we ended with this verse that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. From this one verse, I showed you a couple of weeks ago how I believe here Jesus teaches three of the five doctrines of grace to show the sovereignty of God and salvation. When he says no one can come unto me, he's teaching total depravity. It's impossible. You, you can't come. Nobody can come to the Father. You can't come on your own merit. 
You're dead. We're spiritually dead. We're all under sin. There's none righteous. No, not even one. So we can't come. That's total depravity. In the same verse, Jesus also teaches irresistible grace when he says, unless the father who sent me draws him. The grace of God is so irresistible that if you're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, he will draw you to himself. I tried to show you a couple of weeks ago that I believe this word draw means drag. That's what it means in the lexicons. That's what it means in other contexts as you drag fish gnats to get the fish, as you drag uh, uh, criminals uh, or or, uh, Paul and Silas when they're being dragged into jail and dragged out onto the street, they're dragged. And I tried to share with you a couple of weeks ago, that's what God does. He really drags us to himself. You may say, well, wait a second. I can resist God. No, you can't. Not if you're his. You might think you resist and you might resist for a moment or for a week or for a year. But if you're his, you're his. And he will draw you to himself. And guess what? You'll want to come. Nobody enters into heaven kicking or screaming. He will change your will. He will enlighten your heart to see your need of him. And you will confess your sins. And you'll be so thankful that God drew you or dragged you out of your sinful dead condition and breathed life into you. Then we looked at that last part of the verse that says, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the perseverance of the saints, that God will continue with you. He will raise you up. He will preserve you. His grace is greater than all of your sin. You will never lose your salvation. You'll never be snatched out of his hand. It's God's grace in your life. And so as we kind of continue now in verse 45 through 51 in this sermon today, I want to invite you to come knowing all these truths about the glories of God and salvation. I'm still inviting you to come. And while we, in one sense, we see there are really no prerequisites to coming, in another sense, you must come with the right heart and you must come to the right person. All who come, if they are to be saved, will come in these four ways. And so the sermon this morning is I'm going to give you four truths that will take place in your life if you come. All who come will be saved if they come in these four ways. And they list it out for us here in verses 45 again to 51. The first one is this. Number one, all who come will be taught by God. All who come will be taught by God. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. So Jesus is saying that according to the prophets, all those who come to the Father will ultimately be taught by God. Now let's talk about what that means. What does it mean that all will be taught by God? Your next blank there says this. We're looking at the teaching of the Old Testament prophets. We're looking here at the teaching. Jesus is quoting the prophets. So we're looking at the teaching of the Old Testament prophets. And he's quoting here. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. And when Jesus says it is written in the prophets, he quotes this verse, Isaiah 54, 13, where it says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And what he's saying in that context is, is that Isaiah is reminding the Israelites that although they will face destruction and exile because of their own disobedience, the Lord's covenant of peace will not be removed from his people. There will be a future for Israel. But more importantly than that, there's a future for all Christians who come through the gospel will ultimately have been taught by God. And so when it says, all of your children shall be taught by the Lord, he's saying this is a sovereign act of God where he will teach all Christians the gospel truths. In fact, this word taught means to be trained as a soldier. It means to be equipped uh, to be in the army of the Lord. It means to be discipled. So what God is saying is all who come will come as those who've been taught ultimately by the sovereign act of God. And this is what Isaiah 54 teaches. And the idea is that God will reveal to his people, his son, Jesus Christ, that God will teach them the way of salvation and the way of peace, which is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, God will sovereignly teach. God will sovereignly reveal. God will sovereignly instruct his people in the ways of their God. And God reveals himself through his word, even in the Old Testament, so that we don't have to guess what it is that he's thinking. And God is consistent with his revelation through scripture from the beginning of time. 
Not only Isaiah 54, but let me show you two more Old Testament passages that teach what it means that all will be taught by God. And both of them are a prophecy of the coming new covenant. So turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 31, 31. And this is the first of two texts that teach about the sovereign act of God drawing, dragging Christians to himself to save them through the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. Jeremiah writes this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now listen, verse 32 says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So what's he saying? I've got a new covenant, not like the old covenant, not like the Mosaic covenant. I got something new for you. I got something that I want to share with you and I want to talk to you about. And it's this new covenant, verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor And each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You know what he's saying here? All will be taught by God through the new covenant. God writes the law upon your heart. God changes you from death to life. God will cause you to know him. When he says again in verse 34, all will know me, he's saying the only way that you'll know him is because it's a sovereign act of God through the new covenant to bring you to saving faith. Maybe we could ask, well, Adam, again, what's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? The old covenant was a covenant of works and the new covenant is a covenant of grace. The old covenant expired When Jesus came, the new covenant lasts forever. The old covenant was dependent on man's faithfulness, while the new covenant is dependent on God's faithfulness. The old covenant is what we call bilateral, meaning an agreement between two parties where both parties must keep their agreement in order for that covenant to last. And what happened is God always keeps his covenant, but man broke his. Israel disobeyed God. They did not keep the old covenant perfectly. Therefore, it has been broken. So what God says is, I have a new covenant for you. And the new covenant is going to be not bilateral, dependent on you and me, but rather it's unilateral. And what that means is it's only dependent on God. Only God can save. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't save yourself. God alone can save you. And so the old covenant was mediated by Moses, who's an imperfect mediator, but the new covenant is mediated by Christ. And so the idea is we're seeing something greater than the old covenant. It was to be a picture and it was to point us to Christ. And we can even say a tutor to lead us to Christ to remind us we can't keep the old covenant perfectly, but the old covenant was never intended to save you. It was rather intended to point to something that would never work fully. But when Christ comes, that covenant is replaced. And now you can be saved through the new covenant. Turn with me to Ezekiel, and you'll see the same thing written here. Again, we're talking about all will be taught by God. Is the sovereign act of God in salvation taught by Isaiah 54, taught by uh, Jeremiah 31, and now Ezekiel 36, 24, and 25. Ezekiel writes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What is Ezekiel saying? He's saying in all these I will statements that God will sovereignly teach you, show you and save you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will do it. He will change your heart. He will change your life. It's a unilateral act of God. It's monergistic. It starts with God and it's worked out by God and you have nothing to do with it. And so in order to be taught by God, the Old Testament is saying is that it must be that God is the one doing this work. And just like John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Lord in the same way, these prophecies are preparing the way to show all of us that it must be Christ. 
It must be Christ that saves us. All must be taught by God is the teaching of the Old Testament, but it's also the teaching of the New Testament as well. If you look at your next blank, the teaching of the New Testament apostles will find teach the exact same thing, that all will be taught by God. What does that mean in a New Testament uh, way of saying it? Well, it means that the Holy Spirit's going to teach you. That's what John 14, 26 says. If you'll turn there with me, again, New Testament apostles teaching the same thing. All must be taught by God, namely the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will what? Teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all I've said to you. So who are you taught by? Ultimately, you're taught by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our teacher and will teach you all things. Look at chapter 16, John 16, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Who's our teacher? The Holy Spirit. When Jesus says, all will be taught by God, This is prophesied in the Old Testament. It's taught as well by the New Testament apostles that it's the spirit of truth. That's what we read about in 1 John 2, verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you will have all knowledge. How do you have all knowledge? By being anointed. How do you become anointed? By being saved. When you are saved by the grace of God. You are filled with the spirit of the living God. You're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That means you're anointed. So the idea of the anointing of, well, sometimes, you know, a Christian's anointed when they're walking in power and sometimes there's not. That's just not a biblical way of describing anointing. Anointing is for all believers who are in Christ because they've been taught and have received all knowledge in order that they might be saved according to 1 John 2.20. It goes on in 1 John 2.26 to say, in these, uh, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and his is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now listen to what he's not saying. He's not saying you don't need to ever listen to a pastor or a Bible teacher for the rest of your life, and it's just you and the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible tells us in places that we need to preach the word, and it's assumed that we need to sit under the preaching of the word, even as there's preaching all throughout the Old and New Testament. But what he is saying is that you can't be saved through the preaching of a preacher. You can only be saved by the sovereign act of God taught by the Holy Spirit as he opens your mind and your heart to understand your need for Christ. I can't teach that to you, ultimately. I can show you where it says it, but the Holy Spirit must be your teacher. All are taught by God. If you're a believer and you come to Christ today, you will only come because you have been taught by God. You have been shown by the Holy Spirit that these truths are the way one is saved. It's what Jesus says when he says to, remember when he says to Peter, who do people say that I am? Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He says, but who do you say that I am? And they said, well, you're Jesus, son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus is affirming that it's the sovereign prerogative and freedom of God to reveal and teach those that he saves the gospel truths because that's what God does. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. Faith cometh from hearing, Romans 10, 17 says, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so all along, hearing the gospel has to come through the idea of God revealing and teaching us these truths. And so back to John 6, 45, again, when Jesus says it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God, that's what he means. It's a sovereign act of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So he's also saying, if you've heard the truth from the Father, you will come to Christ. And so he's saying that all those who've been taught by God, all those who've been taught by the Holy Spirit, all those who've heard and learned the word of Christ, all those who have the anointing, all those who are new covenant believers, all those who have received a new heart, all those will come to Christ. They have been regenerated, their minds have been renewed, and their lives have been transformed, and they have been taught by God. 
And so if you've ever been taught by God, you will come to Christ. Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So let me ask you this morning, how about you? Have you been taught by God? Have you had your mind renewed by the Holy Spirit? Have you been transformed by God's grace? Because you cannot come to God based on your own intellect, based on your own study, based on your own understanding, based on your favorite teacher, that teacher gets you nowhere. You must have your mind open by the sovereign grace of God. You cannot come to him based on teachings of another. You cannot come based on your own ingenuity. You cannot come based on your own sincerity. You must be taught by God. Now, the second truth I want to give you this morning is this. Not only must you be taught by God, but number two says, all who come will come through Christ. All who come will come through Christ. Look at this next blank here. Only the Son has seen and can reveal the Father. Only the Son has seen and can reveal the Father. Verse 46, Jesus says this, not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And so what he's saying now is if you've been taught by the Father, the Father's teaching to you will bring you to the Son, and you will come through the Son because only the Son can truly reveal the Father. If you learn from the Father, then you will come to the Son. But it's also the Son's job to reveal the Father. And why is that? Why is it the Son's job to reveal the Father? Because only the Son's been with the Father. Only the Son has been with him from eternity past. Only the Son is of the same substance as the Father. Only the Son is divine. Only the Son has been given the right to judge the world. Only the Son has truly seen the Father because only the Son is from God. It's what we read earlier in John chapter 1, verse 18, at the end of the prologue, where we were told that no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's... Uh, the, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So what that's saying is that only Jesus has been in the bosom of the Father, which means he's been uh, at the side of the Father, of the same substance as the Father. Only Jesus can make him known. Only Christ has ever seen God. God does dwell in inapproachable light. God is so holy that man cannot look upon the face of God and live. Only the Holy Son of God could see the Father in all of his glory and in all of his splendor and not be cast to the ground. It is the Son who is at the Father's side. It is the Son who is of the same substance of the Father. It is the Son who alone can make him known, which is why we read in John 3.32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. They don't receive his testimony on their own initiative. They can only receive that testimony if they've been taught by God. So only the son has seen the father and heard from the father. And when the son came to earth, he told us what the father was like. And so in John 7, verse 29, Jesus says, I know him for I came from him and he sent me. So Jesus knows the father. Jesus comes from the father and Jesus was sent by the father in order to accomplish the father's will. John 8, 38, Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And that passage, he basically says, look, I'm coming from the father. I'm revealing the father. I'm of the father. That's what I'm doing. But you guys are coming from your father who is the devil because you're not saved. You've not been born again. If you're a legalistic Jew who doesn't look to Christ or any unbeliever who doesn't look to Christ, he's saying you're you're not of the father. You must come to the father because you must be taught by the father. If you're taught by the father, you'll come to the son and all who come will come through Christ. Not only that, but your next blank says this, only through the son can a lost soul be saved. Only through the Son can a lost soul be saved. I want to talk to you here on this point a little bit about the exclusivity of Christ. And here's where we get this in verse 46 when it says, except he who is from the Father. So in other words, you can't get to the Father except through Christ. Only through Christ can a lost soul be saved. Only through Christ can a dead man be made alive. Only through Christ can the blind see. Only through Christ can the deaf hear. Only through Christ can you be delivered from your sins. There is no other person. There is no other way. There is no other truth. It's, it's John fourteen six that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. 
That's exclusive. It's only Christ. It's Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so these verses are all pointing to the exclusivity of Christ. And the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ points to the fact that it is only through Christ that a person can be saved. It is not through another person, another faith, or another way. It is Christ alone, which is one of the five solas of the Reformation. That's why we sang this morning, In Christ Alone. And basically what was happening in the church of the medieval ages, they started to stray away from Christ and away from Scripture. In fact, they didn't speak much about Christ. And a church that never speaks about Christ is not considered to be Christ-centered. And the problem was not that the medieval Catholic church did not believe in Christ. The problem was is that they did not believe that Christ was enough. And so they began to add merit in the good works of the saints that would have to be done to somehow be added to Christ, and it was not about Christ alone. So the Roman Catholic Church then and now added many human achievements to Christ's work so that it was no longer possible to say that salvation was entirely by Christ and his atonement. Oh, Christ was part of it, even the main part for sure, but salvation was also to be earned by human merit, especially the merit of the saints. It was actually taught that those who lived extremely holy lives were believed to have accumulated extra merit, which could in return be placed on the accounts of those believers still lacking. Thus, The Roman Catholic Church was able to tap into this treasury of merit and distribute this man-made righteousness upon its highest donors and most faithful subjects. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences. They put the idea of righteousness up for sale. And if you think this is something of the Middle Ages, you've lost touch with the Roman Catholic Church. John Paul II sold indulgences online. You could go online with your credit card and buy indulgences anytime you want as a means to be added to Christ's work to assure you of your salvation. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, in his book, Whatever Happened to the Gospel of Grace, Rediscovering the Doctrines that Shook the World, writes this, quote, This was the most basic of all heresies, as the reformers rightly perceived. It was the work of God plus the work of man, Christ's righteousness plus our righteousness. So do you see the heresy? The heresy, it's Christ plus. And anytime you add to Christ, you're saying Christ is not enough. And so thus the Reformation motto, solus Christus, was formed to repudiate this error. The Bible could not be more clear that salvation is through Christ alone. And yet this vital doctrine has been attacked over and over again, not just from the Roman Catholic Church and other cults, but it's been attacked by so-called Protestants that live in our time. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, staunchly defends the exclusivity of Christ when he points out that there are so many evangelicals today who are weak on this essential doctrine. One example would be Rob Bell and the book that came out a couple years ago that he wrote entitled Love Wins. This is a so-called popular evangelical who began to preach that salvation is outside of Christ because it's available for all people, a hopeful universalism. It's just not true to Scripture, Muller writes. It's not true to the teaching of Christ. It's not true to the teaching of the apostles. And we dare not be playful with that that the Scripture tells us about the message of salvation. The consequences are eternal. Another evangelical author by the name of Brian McLaren. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He's an extreme liberal who wrote in his book, A Generous Orthodoxy. He said, quote, I don't believe making disciples must equal making adherence to the Christian religion. So in other words, he's purporting some type of way to make disciples without necessarily them coming to the Christian faith. And in Al Mohler's response to McLaren's liberal's view is classic. Mohler writes this, quote, 
All that stands between that statement and the truth is the New Testament. That's what he's got to get through, right? In order to understand, he must come through Christ. That's what the New Testament teaches. And so commenting on how so many are apologizing for this truth, Muller goes on to add, if we see the exclusivity of Christ as a negative, hard, burdensome truth, we are forced by Christian duty to bear, we slander the gospel. And we misunderstand the gospel and we undermine the gospel. Only in light of its enemies is this truth burdensome and heavy to bear. Close quote. You know what he's saying? As Christians, many times you and I apologize for this doctrine. As Christians, you're trying to evangelize your neighbor and you're trying to say you must come to Christ. And they say, but isn't there another way? Aren't all roads leading to Rome? And when you say, uh uh uh, actually, it's only through Christ, they look at you and they say, you're a right winged religious fanatic. And I can't believe in a God who only loves people who come your way when all these other religions do so much good in the world and you're saying they're all damned and going to hell. Unbelievers hate the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ, believers should love it. Believers should never apologize for it. Believers should never be ashamed of it. Believers should never somehow cower and say, oh, but I've just got to say it's only Christ. You should proclaim it from the mountaintops in love and with grace that it's only Christ. Otherwise, you don't believe the gospel. So next time you're evangelizing your neighbor or you're talking to a coworker at work, you should not apologize or whisper or murmur this truth. If you want to be saved, all who come will have been taught by the Father, and all who come will come through Christ. Church, I hope you're not ashamed of the exclusivity of Christ. I hope you're not apologizing for the exclusivity of Christ. I hope that you are not discouraged by the world's response to the exclusivity of Christ. Let's continue as a church to lift high the name of Jesus. Let's continue as a church to preach the gospel with more clarity, to share the gospel with more enthusiasm, and to die for the gospel if need be, rather than to tuck our tails to change the truth or to join into the popular views of pluralism or inclusivism. We stand on Christ. The third truth I want to bring to your attention this morning is this. All who come will believe in the gospel. They will believe in the gospel. So all who come will have been taught by God. All who come will look to Christ and all who come will believe in the gospel. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Your next blank says this is true for all people. I just want to highlight for a moment this beautiful reminder of it's whoever believes, whoever believes. While in one sense, the gospel is exclusive, in another sense, we understand there's a broad invitation to whoever so would believe. In fact, turn back with me to the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, and you'll see this terminology, whosoever believes, many times, starting in verse 15, John three fifteen, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Just want to point out again that whoever believes is true. Whoever believes will come. It's not, it's not excluding that somebody can't come. If you believe you'll come, what I believe the Bible teaches is that you can't unless you've been taught by God. You can't unless God saves you by dragging you, drawing you to himself. At the same time, we read here that whoever believes has eternal life, but notice that's a two-edged sword because whoever doesn't believe does not have eternal life. So if you believe, you have it. If you don't believe, you don't have it. I was at a Dodger game a couple of weeks ago. Somebody gave us some last-moment tickets. Uh, so I went with my boys, me and three boys. We're at the Dodger game. We're packed in there, getting close to the end of, you know, regular season play. And the place is, is, is just saturated with people. And we're having a great time. And we're watching the game. And I'm sitting next to my six-year-old. And all of a sudden, Hudson looks around at the crowd. And he looks at me and he said, Dad, 
Do all these people know Jesus? I said, you know what, buddy? They don't. In fact, it's likely that most of these people might not know Jesus. And I thought that might really kind of burden him or become like complexing concept. It's kind of sad, you know, to think about in a huge crowd. It might be that most people don't know Jesus, but it didn't bother Hudson much because he looked at me and he said, well, then we should tell him. I'm like, you're right. I'm trying to watch the game and have a good time. And we should be evangelizing right here, right now. Right? But that's the heart and attitude we ought to have, right? That we're always ready to tell those about Jesus. In some sense, we know they can't come unless they've been taught by God, unless they've been brought in by grace. But at the same time, we have a responsibility. This is why we do missions. This is why we just sent Ben Candy to Brazil. This is why we're trying to get Michael and Jordan C. Houston to Fiji. This is why we're trying to get Ricardo and Vanna Morales to Colombia. This is why we support missionaries in Uganda, Slovenia, Romania, Albania, Germany, India, and Spain. This is why we love to hear from Bob and Lynn Trout, who served faithfully on mission for the gospel for over 50 years. Because the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that everyone who believes, who calls rather, who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in the one in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Doesn't matter where you're from, we're all called to be faithful in calling people and inviting people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's true. This is what God's called us to. It's true for all people. It's also true for all of life. Your next blank. It is true for all of life. All I want to say on this point is this. Whosoever believes is found in the gospel of John 12 times. Every time whosoever believes is found in the gospel of John, it's in the present tense, which means it's not just a past act of like, oh yeah, I believed in God and I believed in the gospel, but now I live life however I want because I got my fire insurance. No, no. The idea is whoever believes is an ongoing belief that God gives you and sustains in you, but you'll continue to believe in an ongoing way. In other words, true, genuine, saving belief is evidenced by a continuation of that belief and of your own actions of obedience which don't save you, but just evidence you've been truly converted. And so a true believer will stay faithful to Christ to the very end. So it's true for all of people. It's true for all of life. In other words, you can't lose your salvation. We've been talking about that. And the third point I want to make here is this. It's true for all time. It's true for all time. Turn with me to Galatians 3, 5 through 9. And I want to address a hyper dispensational issue where some people think that maybe somehow the gospel is a New Testament theme. The gospel is not just true to the New Testament. It's not just something that originated with the Reformation. The gospel has been around for as long as Christ and the world have been around Right? Christ has been around forever. The world was created at a point in time. But here's the point I'm trying to make in this. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, he's saying, are you saved by works or are you saved by faith? We're saved by faith, right? Now listen to this, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, listen, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. And those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It is legalistic and wrong to think somehow in the Old Testament you were saved by the Old Covenant, and in the New Testament you're saved by the New Covenant. That's not true. At no point in time were you saved by keeping the law. Abraham had the gospel preached to him before the law ever came on the scene. The Old Covenant came on the scene most clearly in Exodus chapter 20 when we were given the Ten Commandments. Then the law continues to roll out at the end of Exodus and throughout Leviticus about how God expects people to live. But God never expects you to be saved 
by keeping his law perfectly because you can't. And that's why you and I have broken the old covenant because we could never keep that part of it, which is why he issued a new covenant to remind us that, oh yeah, by the way, you can only be saved by faith. Abraham was saved by faith. Abraham had the gospel preached to him. And you say, who? Who preached the gospel? Could have been Melchizedek. Could have been the sovereign grace of God who opened Abraham's heart because salvation is always the same. God the Father opens the heart of a dead sinner to his love, his grace, and his truth and regenerates people through the gospel from the beginning of history all the way through the day. So the idea is that through all of time, salvation is accomplished only by looking to Christ. Now, it is true that maybe some Old Testament saints didn't understand with the same crystal clear clarity of the New Testament believer all that would go into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. At the same time, it is true that in order to be saved, you would have to understand which you could only comprehend if God revealed that to you because all are taught by God, the idea of a sacrifice of a perfect lamb that would die and that would eventually be raised up by God as the prophecy of the gospel comes as early as Genesis 3.15. And so the idea is, is that all people are saved through the gospel of Christ. All have been taught by God, all have come through Christ and all will believe all who come will believe in the gospel. One more, we'll wrap this up. All who come will eat the living bread. Now, we've already said this a few times, so I'm just gonna uh, summarize verses 48 through 51, but your first blank says this, Jesus is the bread of life, not the manna in the wilderness. Verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And here again, we're looking at how Jesus is the bread of life, not the manna in the wilderness. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's declaring his divinity. He's declaring his vitality. He's declaring that he is God and that he alone gives life. And so in the Old Testament, when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and was bringing them to the promised land, he gave them manna. And if you remember when they first saw manna, you remember what they said? They said, what is it? And that's where the word manna is transliterated from Hebrew. It's the, you know, the small, white, flaky, honey-tasting uh, uh, bread that God provided for them in the Old Testament. When they saw it, they said, what is it? What is it? What is it? I think that when Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, saying that he's the ultimate manna, he's the manna that sustains you for eternal life, I think that we should be asking in ourselves, like, who is this man? Who is this? Who is it? This is Christ. This is the living bread. This is what the manna pointed to. Never were the Israelites supposed to be sustained for eternity through the, through the earthly manna. But that again was a picture pointing to the heavenly manna or the heavenly bread that Christ sustains us, not only through your earthly lifetime, but for all eternity. Jesus, the bread of life, never runs out. You never get tired of Jesus. You'll never wish that you had less of Jesus. They got tired of the manna, spit it out. Got sick of it. You never get sick of Jesus. You come to him because he's the bread of life. And that should cause us to say, who is this? Who is this man? His name is Jesus and all who come to him will eat of this bread. That's your last blank. Jesus is available to all who come and eat of this bread. Jesus again says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's emphasizing here that he gives his life for the world. All who come though, who are taught by God, who come to Christ, who believe in the gospel, and who eat this bread. Now, next week, we're going to pick up this concept of what he says, and this is my flesh. What does he mean when he says that he will give, that he gave, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh? Jesus says, if anyone eats of this bread, they are to eat of his flesh. What does that mean? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Now, I want you to look at the end of your sermon here, a couple of uh, application points in this take-home section. And the first question is this, have you truly been taught by God or are you copying the teachings of man? So just a reminder, all must be taught by God. Don't put too much faith in a human teacher. Don't become of Paul 
or Barnabas or Apollos or in today's vernacular, don't become of MacArthur or Sproul or Piper or whoever your favorite teacher. They're just men. Don't become of Nancy Lee DeMoss Wagamuth. We're of Christ and we appreciate all those teachers. They're great teachers that we appreciate. But have you been taught by God? Have you sovereignly been saved by the grace of God through the scripture? Number two, do you see the exclusivity of Christ as an incredible joy or a regrettable truth? I hope that you were awake when we were emphasizing the exclusivity of Christ so that this week when you go out, you have a big smile on your face when you tell people it's only through Jesus. It's only through Christ. I have the best news. You can be saved, but it's through Christ. And it's not said again in a regrettable way, but with great incredible joy that you have the answer to eternal life. Number three, if the gospel is true for all people, then what are you doing to share it with them? The gospel's true for all people, whosoever believes. If it's true in that sense that anybody could come, what are you doing to share it with them? I hope that you're enjoying our biblical evangelism classes through our small groups where we've tried to get you to identify three people in your life that you're praying for every day to share the gospel. I hope that you're enjoying memorizing verses of scripture that highlight a clear presentation of the gospel to a lost person. I hope that we are truly an evangelistic church that would say all who come, to Christ will be saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive in deep here in John chapter six and just see all that Christ taught us in this important discourse. And I pray God that as we read these truths over and over again, that we would never become so familiar that we become complacent, that we wouldn't yawn when we look at the glories of Christ, that we would be stirred up deep within our soul to want to live this message out, to share this message with the lost and dying world, that this week you would prepare us for opportunities to declare the gospel to friends and to neighbors and to our children. I pray, God, that we would never apologize for it. Thank you so very much, God, that we don't have to qualify to get into heaven by something we do, but that we're only made righteous through Christ And so I pray, God, that if there is somebody here today who's confused on these matters, that you would be their teacher, that you would bring them to the person of Christ, that people would come and see the beauty and the love of Christ who sacrificed his life for sinners like those of us in this room, that we might always believe in him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.